Welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby. Evening. And joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology, he's got a plan to stick it to the man. It's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? Good. Um, Okay, try and guess the tagline. I'm going to guess that is from Chicken Run. Oh, I mean, it's close. It's from Superfly, which is less black exploitation than Chicken Run, but, you know. Chicksploitation. Chicksploitation. I think don't Google that listeners that will lead you down a kind of a dark alley we're going to kind of talk about Sundance this week it's the Sundance Film Festival now or is it just finished I think we're at the time we're recording it's kind of in the tail end of it there's still events going on but most of the coverage seems to have have dried up because they've had the awards and stuff handed out yeah so there's probably like you know, preening indie auteurs crying into mountains of cocaine in kind of Park City somewhere desperate celebrities trying to look and prove their kind of hipster credentials by hanging around outside. I'm pretty sure that's happening right now as we record. Mm, but some of them can't distinguish the cocaine from just all the snow everywhere, so... Yeah, that seems they... like seems like a pretty fucking dumb place to have a festival. Yeah, I think the initial idea was that it would be good to get people away from Hollywood and go to just kind of a small place, but... Now that it's become this kind of huge event, it just means that this small town just gets completely swamped by Hollywood people every so often, as as depicted in a decades-old episode of South Park. Uh, what happens in that one? Uh, it's just basically where they try and... Uh, Robert Redford tries to find a new location for Sundance and decides that he's going to go to South Park and the whole town goes insane because it's South Park and that's the plot line of most South Park, South Park episodes. Oh, okay, okay. I don't remember that one, but uh, I'm sure it exists. I'm sure it's great. We kind of spurred on to talk about this because it's kind of some biggish news coming out of, of Sundance this year and it kind of backs up something we've been talking about for a while now, which is the kind of ever-shifting away from traditional models of distribution. And it became pretty apparent early on Uh, as the festival kind of swung into gear and films were screened and marketed and picked up for distribution, that both Netflix and Amazon, the the kind of uh, market leaders in video-on-demand streaming services, were going to be kind of uh, in amongst it with the big boys acquiring titles. But what we didn't expect to happen is that those two outlets would be the biggest acquirers of titles, full stop. Yeah, the the kind of the, the first one I believe that came out was that Amazon were dropping ten million on the streaming rights to Manchester by the Sea, which is Kenneth Lonergan's new movie, mm-hmm. and uh, that was a big deal because obviously that's a huge amount of money. But it's all, again, it's just for the streaming rights. It's not to do the theatrical release. It's not them just saying, "Oh, it's going to be a streaming only title." Title. It's them saying, "In like two or three years' time, we want to be the ones who are responsible for putting this masterpiece into people's homes." Uh, and that that's kind of a, a huge, a hugely impressive uh, thing to happen. Mm. And it's not just small documentary titles, which the two of these uh, distributors generally pick up. It is big films with the, that would be typical kind of breakout Sundance hits, aren't they? Yeah, I think another big one from Amazon was Love and Friendship, which is the new film by Whit Stillman mm. of uh, Metropolis and Barcelona and Damsels in Distress fame, which... 
Uh, it's not that surprising because he did make a pilot for Amazon a few years ago, which didn't go anywhere. I don't believe. I think but they're they're, Cosm- in, they're, re- uh, they're renewing it in the ba- on the basis of this deal. It's called Cosmopolitans, oh. isn't it? Yeah, uh, I knew that it went to pilot, but I didn't know if they actually did anything further with it. But yeah, this uh, he, a film which is based on an unpublished Jane Austen novel, which is kind of something that it's hard to believe hasn't happened already. Because I think anyone who's ever seen a Whit Stillman film will know that they're very uh, that they essentially are like modern Jane Austen uh, stories, and that they're about the the social minutia of very small, often very affluent groups of people. Mm, mm. Um, I've got some kind of hot news for everyone and uh, this won't be hot news by the time that you get it but the awards have just been announced at the Sundance Film Festival which is kind of exciting but the Grand Jury Prize and the Audience Award have gone to uh, Birth of a Nation which has been kind of quite hyped and discussed heavily and notably going back to what we were saying about Netflix and Amazon the Birth of a Nation filmmakers famously turned down a bigger offer from Netflix uh, to go with uh, someone else, go, to go with like a mini major. Mm, but even so, the amount they took was seventeen point five million, which is the biggest purchase in Sundance history. That is absurd. Yeah, so uh, it's it'll be interesting to see how that one plays out. I'm, I'm very excited to see that one because even from when the title was announced and people talking about it being about the the Nat Turner slave rebellion, and everyone says it's very incendiary. I I was very excited that someone was making a film to a particular, and specifically Nate Parker, who was an actor making his directing debut. Um, hit someone wanting to reclaim a title that is associated with, you know, one of the most important and racist films ever made. Mm. Yeah. I, when I first heard about it, I was like, God, oh, they're a bit slow out of the gates, aren't they, with news? That was years ago. <laughs> but yeah, fair play. They're going for it. Yeah, so that one, the... Grand Jury Prize for Dramatic, uh, Wiener or Weiner, about uh, Anthony Wiener. Is that the guy? Yes, that's right. Yeah, uh, that won the Documentary Award. Uh, Sunita won the World Cinema Award. Jim, the James Foley story, won the Documentary Award. Birth of a Nation won the US Dramatic Award as well, so it's kind of swept up there. But yeah, I mean, I expect to see all of those films on, on kind of uh, Netflix very soon. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things also that is, is interesting about Sundance is it is kind of the first stage in the winnowing down of what other films to get excited about, you know, as the year goes on. Uh, because uh, when we did our preview episode, we talked about there's just so much stuff that it's kind of hard to focus on what's going to be like the great thing. And I think something like Sundance, which draws attention to these titles and might put something like, like uh, Wiener on people's radar, because that doesn't immediately leap out as, you know, a film that people would be that excited about, but the, uh, reports from the festival say that it's a really interesting take on a the entire uh, Anthony Weiner scandal and b what it says about the kind of the the culture in general and media and how it relates to the p- political world. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's worth noting that Netflix have splashed out on a wide range of stuff from documentaries to dramatic stuff to stuff like Brahman Narman, which is a sorry for any of our Indian listeners out there, is an Indian sex comedy which uh, they paid a few million for, which seems kind of crazy. But yeah, they've they've really been busy. Uh, they got Todd Salonzi's new film called Wiener Dog, which I don't think it's got anything to do with a New York kind of mayoral candidate. But yeah, they've got uh, the new uh, Ellen Page film called Tallulah. Yeah, they've really gone all out. And I read an article, uh, which was quite interesting, 
in the Guardian this week, and it was saying something like, "Does Netflix and Amazon need to make a decision as to whether they are a television company or whether they are a film company?" And I thought it was kind of weird, but then I can kind of see the point of what they're trying to say. I'm just not sure I agree. Yeah, I think in the case of of Amazon and Netflix acquiring films, it's it's an interesting. It's kind of interesting because the films themselves are they're inherently quite limited because the idea is people will watch the film and maybe they'll rewatch it a few times, but it's not going to be a thing that they watch a ton of times. Whereas making TV shows makes sense for streaming because people watch it and then every year you put out a new season and more people watch it and maybe more people think to um, to buy to subscribe because they'll be part of the cultural conversation in a continuing way that you don't really get with a film. And them purchasing films is mainly at this point so that they can put them into a limited release that will make them eligible for awards consideration, which so far has only paid off for Netflix with their documentaries. But that's clearly what they want to do is they want to break the stranglehold that all of the traditional uh, distribution models have on the Oscars, which are kind of the the big deal you know that's the thing you want to try and make sure that your films win because it will get the most play in the media mm-hmm. it'd be interesting to see how those first raft of acquisitions play out talking about Sundance with a bit more kind of historical context it's been going for a while now it's been going as Sundance for since the kind of the, the early 90s but before it was uh, just the Utah Film Festival or something it was called it wasn't wasn't called Sundance but it's been a real kind of springboard for a lot of directors who kind of form the backbone of of kind of today's greatest filmmakers. People like uh, Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, Jim Jarmusch's, Steven Soderbergh, Darren Aronofsky, David O. Russell. These are kind of big hitters and they all got their break at Sundance. It's interesting if you look at kind of the history, certainly the recent history of American independent cinema, Sundance has an outsized role with it. People often talk about the boom of in independent cinema starting in the in the early nineties or the late eighties really with Sex Lies and Videotape, which was a huge hit at Sundance and then went on to dominate at Cannes and been nominated for an Oscar and pretty much set off that wave of independent filmmaking being kind of a part of mainstream culture for a really long time. And I think it's quite interesting that Sundance has become much bigger because like the deals are getting bigger, more people go there every year, but it seems to have receded from that level of um, cultural importance in that time. Because it used to be that if you wanted, that if a filmmaker wanted their film to be seen, like the people you mentioned or someone like Kevin Smith, who his, his career kind of really kicked off when Clerks won uh, some, I think an audience award or something at Sundance that was the kind of the place that a career could be made. And now Sundance in some respects kind of feels like just another film festival. The only thing it, it has over of is that it's the first one of the calendar year. Yeah. It's it's interesting. You bring Kevin Smith into it. Cause I was, as kind of preparing for this episode, I read an interview with Smith where he was talking about perhaps the festivals and the deer during the kind of mid to late nineties, where it became a place where Paris Hilton and Britney Spears could get their photos taken kind of in an attempt to give them some kind of indie credo. And he said that around that time, he didn't think that Clerks would be accepted to the Sundance Film Festival, which is kind of crazy to see, to, well, to think how synonymous that his name is with, and that film is with Sundance. Yeah, I think it has, that 
aspect of it, I think, has receded a bit then. You are still seeing now kind of small, interesting films showing up, like um, the movie Swiss Army Man, which has been getting a lot of attention, being as it is the movie in which Daniel Radcliffe plays a farting talking corpse with a constant direction, which uh, sounds like it's one of the films he would have starred in in Trainwreck. Mm. Um, well, I mean, and- he's tried very hard to not be typecast in the Harry Potter mould. Yeah, this is the most extreme version of that, it has to be said. But apparently it's actually pretty good. But that is that is very much a film where you think, yeah, this is this is a, a film that probably wouldn't be accepted in a lot of places. I think that Sundance have got better at focusing on kind of smaller things. But at the same time, it now does seem to be a launching place, a, a launching pad for people who are established filmmakers who just have new products put out. If you look at the people who are there now, Kenneth Lonergan um, got his start with uh, You Can Count On Me, which first appeared at, at Sundance. Taika Waititi's got a new film there called Hunt for the Wilder People, and all of his films today have debuted at Sundance. Um, for Ragnarok probably won't, mm, but I wouldn't who's have to so. say? Although, um, have, you, have you heard what they've talked about for Ragnarok being? Uh, Taika Waititi says he wants it to be a Midnight Run-style comedy between uh, Thor and the Hulk, which instantly you know, shut up and take my money. Yeah, that to me sounds incredibly enticing, particularly because his his comic sensibilities chime with me quite strongly and he's someone whose work I've really, really enjoyed. Mm. Uh, and I think that Thor and the Hulk are the two characters who are kind of the best comedic... They have the best... Um, I'll put you to use best comedically in the Marvel films when, like in the first Thor... Chris Hemsworth is really funny in the Avengers. They both have good chemistry with each other. Uh, and it's just in the more serious films that they're not particularly well used. Mm, mm. Um, but yeah, also people like, you know, as we said, Todd Salon's got a new film there. Kelly Reichert has got a new film there. These are all people who have kind of experience with the festival. And now it feels more like they, it's partly about letting new voices come in and introducing new people to the world and, uh, you know, kind of amplifying these new smaller films, but also it's where people who are on Sundance's radar already and have, in some case, decades-long relationships with the festival just kind of show up because they have something new. Mm. How much of an impact does the Sundance Lab have nowadays? Because famously Robert Redford set up uh, the Sundance Institute to kind of help filmmakers and for people like Tarantino... It gave him kind of like uh, money to try stuff out and shoot some footage, rehearse, give rehearsal space, that kind of stuff. Um, to, what, to what extent does their work continue at the moment? I think it still happens. I think it still is an incredibly useful resource for young filmmakers, but I, I feel like it hasn't, it either hasn't produced anyone in a while who kind of has been kind of a huge deal in that sense. Not, not like a, a, a Paul Thomas Anderson who uh, famously used the, the the resources of the Sundance Lab to make his short coffee and cigarettes, which ended up being the basis for Hard Eight, his debut. Um, I think it's something that a lot of people do, but it's no, no longer feels like the sole um, springboard. But that may just be because, you know, as we say, the, the film industry has changed and there are now more opportunities for people to just go out and make a thing that they may not need to go to Sundance, even though the resources are there. Mm, mm. We talk a lot about the 70s, uh, the kind of the Easy Riders, Raging Bulls period as being kind of the last great movement in kind of definitely American cinema. But how close is the kind of 
post uh, sex lives and videotapes Sundance boom to matching that. Uh, I can't think of any kind of era of kind of unbridled creativity that kind of just ran for quite a long time, not as a cohesive movement, but with its individual components kind of shooting off in lots of different directions. Uh, I feel like it get it's closer in in some ways in that it has a handful of very clear personalities that it's easy to identify it with, uh, which is something that is is kind of a, a big thing that you can identify with the seventies with the movie brats that there are all these filmmakers who all kind of knew each other and all came up at the same time or they all had a shared sensibility, and I feel that the Sundance boom has that, but it also it's not as wide ranging in terms of tone and genre as a lot of the stuff in the 70s was um i think the 70s had a lot of people trying things in different genres whereas uh, very quickly it seems that the idea of what a sundance movie was kind of came forward and also i think that the experimentation of that time was mainly limited to applying very level various levels of irony to established genres as opposed to what like Scorsese and Coppola and um, Spielberg were doing which was to take these and and Lucas were taking these right established genres and trying to update them for a different era mm-hmm. yeah I, I can see what you mean about the personalities rather than the, the work being kind of more cohesive but if anyone wants to read books because some of you out there do like that there's a couple that I'd recommend on the Sundance kind of phenomenon there's one called Spike Mike Slackers and Dykes um, which is uh, kind of not strictly about Sundance, but kind of follows all of those kind of people who've got their break there. Uh, and then also Peter Biskind, who did write the aforementioned Easy Riders Raging Bulls. Uh, he wrote a book called Down and Dirty Pictures, which is uh, mostly about the... Well, it's about 50% about Sundance, the post-Sundance boom, and then it's 50% a hatchet job on the Weinsteins. Yeah, which I think is... Uh... Seems about right. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, they're big boys. I think they can they can handle it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you remember that episode of this podcast we did where I was convinced, and we cut it out, but I was convinced that Tina Fey was married to Harvey Weinstein. I do remember that. Yeah, that was a very strange tangent and a very strange rumor to have <laughs> in your head because when we tried to look it up, there was literally no substantiating evidence on it anywhere. No, it's like one of those things where you type in Tina Fey, Harvey Weinstein, and you get a lot of articles where they are mentioned in the same like five paragraphs. Like Tina Fey goes to this restaurant, and so does Harvey Weinstein. Um, At the Golden Globes, Tina Fey hosted, and Harvey Weinstein was in the audience. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. So I don't know where I got that from. Possibly Peter Biskin's book. Who knows? I read between the lines. But yeah, those are two good resources if you want to kind of get into that. There's also a, a film called Independence Day, but spelled independent with a T, which it comes at, it's, it's it's set around the time that Steven Soderbergh goes back to Sundance with Out of Sight. Or no, he's there talking about his previous films and how he's just about to make Out of Sight. And it's a kind of pretty interesting look at what happened after that Sundance boom. Because if you look at those names that I've listed... Most of those people, with maybe the exception of Jim Jarmusch, you know, are making big studio pictures. And Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, Darren Aronofsky, David O. Russell, Steven Soderbergh, they're all making big Oscar-contending movies. And also I think it's interesting that a lot of them didn't really go back to Sundance, except maybe just because they were on the jury or something. I think after they their early kind of years or their early experience with it, they pretty quickly outdrew it. And I think you can see... Like people like Jim Jarmusch, but also like 
Kev Lodigan and, and Todd Salons uh, and Todd Haynes to an extent. These are people who I think probably feel that the the whole Sundance thing is kind of a big important part of their story, so they will actually return with films. They may not be in competition, but I think they they do see it as an important part of of how their films get out into the world. Where I think Tarantino and Rodriguez and and people like that clearly at a certain point they just thought you know I I, I don't really need this. <laughs> I I have a a studio apparatus behind me that will allow me to basically just do what I want. I don't need to uh, schlep over to Utah to talk about my films unless uh, I want to be fated by the organisation. Because mm, it's easy to forget that, like all film festivals, it is ultimately a marketplace. The awards are kind of secondary to people getting their films sold and those kind of guys you know, don't need to do that anymore. Yeah, and, and I think for them, certainly if you listen to Kevin Smith's story of Clerks, the... Uh, Sundance was kind of the make or break thing for him in getting it seen and getting it purchased and it not becoming this massive mistake in his life that would bankrupt him. (laughs) Um, And clearly it is something that means a lot to the people who go there. But um, aside from the kind of the artistic aims of the festival, which I think maybe have become a little bit diluted as it has become a bigger deal, uh, it has always been a case of yeah, you like you need to come here to be able to sell your film and get it made, um, uh, or to you know kickstart a career. You know, famously, the Coen Brothers won a big prize for Blood Simple, and I think the fact that their new film is opening in like a week is a testament to the impact that Sundance can have. That people who won an award at like the second or third Sundance have still got a career more than thirty years later. Mm-hmm. So do you think that it's recovered after that kind of mid to late 2000s celebrity invasion? Because I know that it was very much a deliberate attempt by the Sundance uh, Film Festival to try and kind of get rid of that element of it and make it more about serious films. But do you think that ultimately those days are gone and it is just another film festival? Uh, yeah, I do think that it has lost the cultural cachet that it had in the early 90s when it was seen as like the hippest place to go and the place where all of these big talents kind of exploded from. But at the same time, I think it receding from the culture has been the best thing for it because then you don't get as many of the kind of celebrities going. But also I think that also that culture of celebrities just showing up to film festivals has permeated every film festival now, except maybe not slam dance or something super small, any kind of, major film festival has that now so it no longer feels like uh sundance is selling out and they don't have to just be about the celebrities they can be in part about the kind of the celebrity stuff but also about making getting films out there Mm. it's interesting that you said that like no none of the filmmakers we talked about went back but just reading now that kevin smith's been back hawking his usual bullshit and he's been back most years and if i think about it kind of some kind of antics every single February. Um, like, wasn't it like a couple of years ago that he was giving the rights to his film Red State for like a dollar or something? Oh, yeah, and then he announced that he himself had bought it. Oh, who'd have thought it? Yeah, he, he's someone who's never outgrown it. In fact, there's a lot of things he hasn't outgrown. <laughs> yeah, I think it's probably indicative of deeper issues with him as a person and an artist that he still goes back um, and still just kind of 
puts out his half four ideas mixed up, uh, come up with on a podcast. Mm-hmm. Wear some proper trousers, young man. That's all I'll say to you. <laughs> um, we're going to do... Um, Buy a fucking shirt. Yeah, yeah, and turn that baseball cap the other way around. It's not the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> like Spielberg. How are you going to keep the sun out of your eyes? Um, every time I see uh, Kevin Smith, I'm reminded of, uh, reminded of Poochie from The Simpsons. <laughs> uh, I don't know whether that's just me or not. I'm not really sure. Uh, or maybe I'm just a part of, you know trying to appeal to a new demographic. Hmm. I think knows? we are we are living up to the Poochie idea in that Kevin Smith isn't here and we are talking about him, mm. which is the, the Homer says that whenever Poochie's not on screen, everyone should be asking, where's Poochie? <laughs> yeah. Good God, we've become slaves to Kevin Smith and his absence. Yeah, that's weird. Um, we're going to do uh, recommends now, uh, like we do every week, but we're going to do a slightly different one. We're going to talk about perhaps some Sundance films that people have forgotten about or they might not have seen. And this was spurred on by a Nathan Rabin article this week. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There was an article he put out, which I will put in the comments, uh, in the comments, which I'll put in the, the show notes for this, which uh, is a kind of a list of 10 films that debuted at Sundance and should have been bigger hits than they actually were. These ones that kind of got a lot of buzz and then sort of disappeared. Mm. And uh, for my entry... Uh, in this canon of uh, Sundance films that have disappeared without trace, is a film that I chose as one of my ten favourite films in the very first episode that we did of this podcast, my ten favourite films of 2011. Um, and it was a film that took so long to get out of Sundance, it actually won the uh, Best Director and Best Cinematography Prize in 2008, but didn't see a cinema release until 2011. Uh, I'm talking about the film Ballast, uh, which is a film that is directed by a guy called Lance Hammer, who's only ever directed one film, and that's Ballast. He's a visual effects artist, and he uh, worked on films like Practical Magic, Batman Forever. Um, but he directed this one film, and it's not a effects-heavy sci-fi opus, as you might imagine from his CV, but it's a very quiet, very meditative film about a family living on the Mississippi Delta who are kind of forced together in the wake of... Uh, someone's suicide and it's a really heartbreaking film really beautiful film very kind of elegantly shot it's kind of got kind of notes of Terence Malick but it's not quite as kind of mystical I guess and it's a very human story and I can't believe that a film that got complete consensus critical acclaim just disappeared without a trace and no one saw it yeah that's I think that's something that you see at basically every film festival ever is that there'll be one film that gets a lot of attention and just falls through the cracks, whereas something that's maybe a little more uh, mediocre um, becomes kind of the audience favourite and then goes on to be a huge success. I'm looking, um, at, I'm looking at you, my little Miss Sunshine. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Oh, um, fuck, that film's fucking terrible. Yeah, that there is a, that, there is a certain kind, that's another thing we didn't kind of get into, but yeah, I think Little Miss Sunshine also was kind of a watershed for the idea that you could essentially take a film that was basically a studio-friendly, a a, a kind of accessible studio picture, uh, make it for slightly less than you would do if you were making it with a major studio and this debut at Sundance, uh, which has kind of become a pattern that happens an awful lot. Mm -hmm. It's that kind of Sundance movie, isn't it? Yeah, it's the the very, you know, pastel colours, often very symmetrical framing, ironic music choices. Mm, The one this year, I think, is, I can't remember what it's called, but it's like John Krasinski and Anna Kendrick in a kind of a family brought together by some kind of mishap um, have to kind of overcome their differences to realise they're all ultimately the same. 
yeah, it helps to have someone who is usually a comedian doing a serious role or a cast entirely of kind of mid-level celebrities. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So that's that. What have you got for us this week? I have a movie which I just watched today and which is very, very good, although it is um, quite harrowing. So it's kind of a, a warning for people going in. It's a documentary by Bobcat Goldthwait called Call Me Lucky, which has just recently been added to Netflix streaming. It is partly a documentary about the comedian Barry Crimmins. Well, it's entirely about him, but it's partly about his influence as a comedian who was kind of very important in the Boston comedy scene in the 80s. He was someone who uh, started a a comedy night in a Chinese restaurant, which became kind of a focal point and very influential for bringing together a lot of people who were part of that scene, people like uh, Mark Maron and David Cross and John Ennis and people who would... You know, years later, go out to LA and work on things like, um, uh, like Mister Show, or to go to New York and work on uh, Late Night with Conan O'Brien. People who were, so he is kind of has a very important place in comedy comedy history and helping to kind of bring these people, give these people a place to congregate and to do their stuff. But it's also about him as a comedian who was very politically active, who was very critical of Ronald Reagan, and who at some point in his set would just stop telling jokes and just start. <laughs> spewing facts at people similar to basically what david cross's stand-up ended up becoming and he also at the same time was someone who was sexually abused when he was very young and the film becomes about him at some point becomes about him kind of helping other survivors of sexual abuse or, or and tackling kind of in the early days of the internet um online pornog- uh, child pornography sharing on AOL chat rooms and stuff like that and so it has on the one hand this kind of very social this very funny and kind of um sociologically and politically interesting stuff and on the other hand this kind of really heart-wrenching uh story about a man kind of delving into his own personal kind of hell in order to try and help people and it's a very uh like I say it's very harrowing but it's also a very kind of in some ways inspiring documentary about a guy who is incredibly principled didn't kind of compromise himself and kind of helped a lot of people as a result uh, and it's a very very fascinating uh, documentary it's the feel-good hit of the summer <laughs> it's probably the bobcat golfweight film that is kind of the least uncomfortable he's made but that's something yeah yeah he's uh Makes him very, very. Uh, well, let's just say he's got a diverse filmography. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Certainly, as a director, he can kind of be very uncomfortable, and sometimes in ways which are terrible, such as "God Bless America." But sometimes it's it can be really fascinating, such as uh, "World's Greatest Dad" and this. We do. It's a really, really terrific piece of work. Mm. Yeah, that's your lot on Sundance this week. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. As usual, you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher, Smart Radio, and all the other good media outlets. If you've liked uh, the show, then please review it. It helps other people find us. We'll be back next week with a episode all about sports. So, well, sports movies, not just sports. We're going to talk about baseball for two hours. That'd be crazy. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.